Okay, I feel a great sense of distance here, uh, <laughs> both from the people on the couch and from the people on the Zoom call. I, I just want to uh, I want to begin by expressing my own akar satov for giving me the opportunity to be here. It's a, um, you know, we, we all need to process, we all process in our own way. Some people go to shirim, some people give shirim, so... Thank you very much for, uh, for giving me the opportunity. I don't want to speak for very long tonight. Um, the way that we structured it tonight is, uh, as I see somebody just posted on the group chat, during the final 10 minutes of this year, there'll be uh, questions and answers if anybody wants to ask anything. Specifically, for those who are new, how many of you are, well, Grossman's been around for a while, but how many of you are new in the country? New means here within the last five years. Okay, so you're new. You know, uh, Aliyah is a 15, 20-year process. So, uh, um, for those who have not, for those who have not lived through something like this before, um, please feel free to ask anything for yourself, for children, or anything like that. So, I just want to share a couple brief ideas. Um, my wife shared with me something just now as I was walking out the door that I felt was so exquisite. I, I said, you know. I, Sometimes you don't know how to start a shear, and then like two minutes before you're about to start, you get a gift. So this is a gift I got from my wife. Um, every year on, on Oshana Rabbah, my wife asks me to say the same Dvar Torah. It's a Dvar Torah that I'm sure you've heard. Um, we know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu on Shemini Atzeres says, Ikvuli od yom echad, stay with me one more day. Kikasha elai predaschem, because it's difficult for me when you leave. And the question that's asked is, you know, it doesn't make any sense if we don't want to leave our beloved, so then staying longer makes it more difficult to leave. It's like, um, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, you know when you're at the airport when you're a kid and you're going to, if you're going to Israel, you're going to Mechlelet or to some sort of program like that, and then... Your parents are at the airport, so there's always those parents that drag it out a little bit and make it much more difficult for the kids. You know the, uh, you know those parents. So it's uh, it seems strange that the Rebbeinu Shalom says, "Stay with me one more day." Kikasha elai predaschem. So the common answer, the answer that um, that my wife asks me to give every year is Adam mekalkelus asashuva. It's love does you know insane things, and when we love our children, we don't want them to leave. The Rebbeinu Shalom doesn't want us to leave. There is, however, a question on that Dvar Torah. The question on that Dvar Torah is as follows. It's impossible for a Jew to leave Hashem, and it's impossible for Hashem to leave a Jew. So what does it even mean? Even if you want to give the answer of Ahavam the Kalkelis as Hashura, it's not an understandable question. What does it mean? HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, is leaving? Is it possible for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to leave a Jew? We use sometimes funny language when we're talking about Judaism. We say we're trying to grow closer to Hashem. What does that mean? How can a how can a Jew be closer to Hashem? We can't be farther from Hashem. We can't be closer to Hashem. Those are not not those are not understandable words. Hakadosh Baruch Hu is infinite. Infinite means that he's not limited to time or space, which means that by definition he's permeating all of space. So we can't possibly be closer to Hashem. We certainly can't be farther from Hashem. So my wife said today, Apsha uah. Ooh, a smart lady. She said, um, I don't know if she heard it from somewhere, but she said a beautiful pshat. She said, Ikfuli odyom echad, stay with me one more day, kikasha elai predastem, because it's difficult for me when you leave each other. In the uh, in the sukkah, so we say, call Yisrael ruyim leishev b'sukkah achas, that all Jews can live under one sukkah. The the achdus that's expressed on sukkahs, it's a very beautiful thing, you know. I don't want to say anything negative about Klal Yisrael ever. Certainly not today, but it is a, a different experience. It seems to me somehow here in Eretz Yisrael and in America. In America, you wake up in the morning, and the question is how how early do you have to wake up in order to catch the bus to go to Adventureland or to go to Great Adventure or wherever it is you're going for that day. Here, it seems to me that there's a certain level of uh, Maybe we go on to Yulim, but there's a certain hominess that exists. Everyone, like, it seems we spend more time sitting in the sukkah here. I'm, I'm exceptionally blessed. My entire family made Aliyah, literally. My entire immediate family made Aliyah. My parents led the way. 
and then uh, they brought my little sister, and my brothers followed after me. Um, and then my wife's entire family also made Aliyah. It's exceptionally, exceptionally uh, privileged, except for one sister who really wants to be here. She's just stuck in America, and it happens to be she was here for this sukkah. So what did we do? What's a good activity? My brother-in-law posted on the, on the family group chat, what are we doing today? And people literally wrote to him on the group chat, we're headed to you right now. <laughs> like they, he, didn't, uh, he didn't know, but people were badarach to him. We spend our time in sukkahs together. That's what we do on sukkahs. It's difficult for the Rebbe Shalom when, when Jews leave each other. Why is that? You know, as parents, we know there's nothing... I don't know if you have this. Tell me if you can empathize with this. When your children fight with each other, does it get into your spine? You know what I mean when I say it gets in... You know that like place inside of you where you just like clench up and you're like, I just can't deal with your fighting right now? You ever, like, especially if you have teenagers... I don't know if everyone here has teenagers. I give you a brach, you should all have teenagers, multiple girls at once. I have Kananahara five daughters, and four of them were teenagers at once. It's a, uh, so that it seems to me that, I don't know if it's different when you have boys and girls, but it seems to me for sure that girls have a tendency to bicker. They fight about, you know what I'm saying? They fight about narishkeit, they fight about nothing. They find, not you, but I'm saying, I'm just looking to you because maybe you could empathize with me a little bit. I mean, I mean... I'm I'm in I'm in I'm in need of uh, of community solace. There's a there's a sense that a parent has when a child is disconnected from their sibling. There's a sense of pain to the parent. The parent naturally understands that there's a oneness to the kid that the kid doesn't understand. You know, somebody once said a beautiful line: uh, "Family is a group of people that you would never choose to live with, but somehow can't live without." I like that very much. You know, it's like. We drive each other crazy, but we drive each other crazy, and it doesn't mean that chas v'shalom, we're separate from each other. But we behave that way very often, and we've been behaving that way. I just want to start off by saying that I have no interest in playing games of theodicy. I have no interest in playing games of why the Rebbe Shalom did what he did, or what the timing was. This is not, the, this is not for, for us to understand. I, I saw a beautiful vart. From Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, he said by Megillus Esther, Esther Amalka said, Kaili, Kaili, Lama Azavtani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And uh, Dr. Lamb, in a play on words, he said, Al Tikri, Lama Ela Lima. We shouldn't say, Why did you abandon me? Rather, For what did you abandon me? In other words, our responsibility is not to ask God why, but to ask God, What am I supposed to do with this feeling of abandonment that we have? One of the most uh, powerful divrei Torah that I ever heard was said in the name of Rav Soloveitchik from Chief Lord Rabbi Doctor Jonathan Sachs. I think I got all of the uh, I think I got all the things right. And he said, "We say in benching Nar Hayisi Gam Zakanti Velo Raisi Tzadik Nezav Zara Mevakesh Lachem." That uh, David Melch says, "I'm sorry, yeah." That David Melch says, "Until him, I was young and I was old." And I never saw a righteous man be abandoned as children go hungry. So Rasalovechik asks, what does that mean? We never saw a righteous man go hungry and his children were abandoned? What are you talking about? We see this all the time. The righteous suffer. How could it possibly be that the Rabbanishlam that that there was that David Amalch is saying the Rabbanishlam doesn't abandon people? And Rasalovechik in a brilliant, absolutely brilliant shot, he said, we're translating the words incorrectly. Nar hayisi, I was young, v'gam zakanti, and I was old, v'lo ra'isi, and I never stood by and watched as a tzaddik was abandoned and his children went hungry and didn't have bread to eat. As the Rebbe Shalom put suffering into the world because he wants us to heal that suffering. So we're not here to explain why anything happens, but we're here to answer the question of what are we going to do with the situation that we're in? What lessons can we draw from it? When Chazal speak about that if something is going wrong in your life, you fashvesh for myself, it doesn't mean that we should say, oh, I did this wrong and that's why this happened, but rather we use these opportunities for introspection. We use them as the opportunities for personal growth. Is a beautiful story about the organization Bone Olam, a time, you're familiar with this organization? Um, Bone Olam was founded by a couple, forgive me, I forget their names for a moment, Bachner, correct. I spoke once for them and I met Rabbi Bachner. He's a tremendous person. So the Bachner family, they, they couldn't have children. And I think it was 20 years that they tried to have children and they were not able to have children. At the very, very end, um, at the very end, at the very last doctor's appointment, this was going to be it if we go one way or the other. And uh, they were unfortunately told in that last doctor's appointment, it's over, it's time to stop. 
trying to have a child. And we can't imagine the devastation of going through something like that. In the car ride on the way home, Rebetzin Bachner turned to Rabbi Bachner and she said, okay, now that the Rabbani Shalom has said no to us, the question is, how will we say yes to the Rabbani Shalom? What are we going to do with this? And she said, look, we know everything there is to know about the process of trying to have children. We know about all the doctors and all the tests and all the opportunities that are available. For us, the answer was no, we're not able to have children. But what are we going to do with all this information? She said, I'm going to start an organization to help women who are having fertility issues, to help them have children. That's how Bona Yolam was born. Bona Yolam was born in a car ride on the way back from her getting a no. And since that point, 8,000 plus children have been born because of the work that Bona Yolam does. So many millions of dollars of tzedakah have been raised and doctors, and in vitro fertilization, and rides to doctors, and, and chesed, and so on and so forth. Unbelievable. Why? Because a person didn't wallow in their own pity, but rather they grabbed the opportunity. We're, we're looking today, you know, to sit and waste your time on the toxic social media of, uh, first of all, you should never be subjected, and nobody should watch these horrific videos. I understand that the state of Israel has a need to put out these videos on social media because they have a need to tell the world this is what's going on in order to garner world support. That I can understand. What I don't understand, and what unfortunately does happen, is people like spreading these videos for, for likes and for retweets and for and for people to watch these things is horrific. And uh, these things leave an indelible impression on a person's mind. This is not a reason that a person should go on social media. My wife will not step on; she will not step foot in the cesspool of social media. Because she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to be. She doesn't want to be involved in seeing the world in that way. However, my wife told me before I left. She said she does look at WhatsApp updates. She does look at like the uh, WhatsApp. I think it was called statuses. Now it's called updates. So she looks at the WhatsApp updates. Because on the WhatsApp updates, you're not subjected, at least on her feed, you're not subjected to any of the terrible pictures. But what you do see is the massive amount of chesed that's happening in Klai Yisrael right now. People post videos of them standing on the side of the road and giving out bottled water and pizza and, and ragalach and cookies. Which, first of all, how Jewish is that, right? Like, you know, people are going out to war and we're like, make sure you have something to eat. You know, like that's the... The most Jewish thing we could think of, but these videos—they're—they're they're exceptionally impressive. I was very—I'm proud to say that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Lassery, who's one of the highest people in the entire army, was eating my daughter's brownies today. My uh, my daughter, my daughter's got the phone call from my mother that uh, my brother-in-law Benji is in the army. He's in intelligence, and uh, she said, if you want to send stuff over, Benji will bring it to the base. So my daughters got on the phone with their friends and said, okay, who's making? And I went over 8 o'clock at night with a car full of baked goods. People went to the Makolet and they bought pitas and ragalach. They bought, they bought the place out. My brother-in-law showed up. He thought he was bringing like three cakes to the office. He was bringing, a, so he said he's going to do it piecemeal every single day. And then he sent me a picture today of, uh, of all the food out. And he said, Lieutenant Colonel Lassery is trying all the different cakes to see which ones he likes best. <laughs> so it's, it's a very sweet thing. We know how to do this very well. We know how to, we know how to be together. I don't think that it takes a grace chacham it's better to be wise than to be a prophet. I don't think it takes a grace of Chacham to be able to look at this world and to say, we really messed it up this past year. We really, really messed it up. Boy, did we do a good job. We really figured out how to leave each other. We figured out how to leave each other in every single possible way that a Jew could figure out how to leave each other. We fought over the stupidest things. I don't like to use that word. We fought over the silliest, silliest things. We fought over who's more religious than the other. We fought over democratic reform. And we fought in terrible ways. We fought, we fought, we fought. And it always happens. We fight until there's an enemy that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends from the outside to remember that we're all the same. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a beautiful story of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Lubavitcher Rebbe seems to have, again, it's Chiluke Deus, exactly how close the relationship was. The Lubavitcher Rebbe had a, some sort of relationship with Rosalavechik. Certainly they knew each other when they were children. When they were kids in University of Berlin, they were chavrusas. Um, they would go to Shir together. And it seems that they kept up some sort of relationship over the years. Rosalavechik, um, I think they say that Rosalavechik visited the Rebbe when the Rebbe's mother passed away. And uh, the Rebbe once indicated that, um, that most people don't understand the depth of the relationship that he and Rosalavechik had. It seems that they had a, somewhat of a relationship. By the Rebbe's 80th birthday party, so Rosalavechik was invited to attend. And they sent a limo to, uh, to pick up the Rav, and they brought him to uh, 770. They brought him to Crown Heights, and there was 
for those of you who have seen the videos of the Rebbe, so the Rebbe sat at a very, very long dais, and the older Hasidim sat behind him, and then everybody else sat in the uh, in the mosh pit over there, and um, and they invited Rosalvechik to speak on the dais, to sit on the dais. Rosalvechik felt very comfortable, uncomfortable sitting on the dais. But on the other hand, where else was he going to stay? He wasn't going to be in the mosh, but he didn't want to be with the older chassidim behind. So they, they put a chair for him at the very, very end. There's pictures of it. You could see online. So there's the Rebbe in the middle, all the older chassidim behind, and then all the chevra in the mosh pit, and then like 20 feet down that way is Rosalavechik. It's a very beautiful picture. And he was there for the Rebbe's Fabrengen for the 80th birthday. And then he left. And as he was leaving, there was a reporter that was there, and the reporter uh, casted Rosalavechik, and he, in a joking way, he said... I see that now uh, the Baal Shem Tov and the Vilna Gon have finally made peace with each other. After all, who would be a greater scion of the Vilna Gon than a Salavechik? And who would be a greater scion of the Baal Shem Tov than a Shnirsen? And Salavechik, in his own inestimable way, he said, uh, no, the Gra and the Baal Shem Tov already made peace when they were burned in the same ovens in Auschwitz. And there's, no, there's, a, there's always a sense that when, when we... When we push away from each other, somehow the Gaim have the capacity to push us, push us back together. I'm not here to play theodicy games, but there's, there is no doubt in my mind, there is no doubt in my mind on any level whatsoever, that if we are going to take one lesson away, and this time maybe we'll really do it. You know, the definition of insanity is doing something over and over again and expecting different results. And we are an insane nation. We are an insane nation of 3,000 years. 3,000 years we have the same insanity. We know that Chazal said the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed because of Sanaschinam. Every Tishabav, every single Rebbe darshans on one subject. It's all of Rosh Chodesh Av. We hear it all the time. And, and then something happens like this and we go, it's time for Av And somehow we forget afterwards, but maybe this time we won't forget. This is the greatest tragedy in one single day since the Holocaust. When did it happen? On Simchas Torah. When? On the day that HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Ki kasha elai Please don't leave each other. And you know what? It's been a couple of days. We haven't left each other. It's been a couple of days. Left, right, center. It doesn't matter what you, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you're Haredi or Tzioni or Chiloni. It doesn't matter if you're Hasidish or Litvish or Sephardi. Everybody today loves everybody. I saw a picture of, a, of, a, of one of the alumni of the yeshiva, a very beloved Talmud, he posted on his status a picture of him. He just finished giving blood. He waited seven hours online. Seven hours to give blood. Since when do we wait online for seven hours for anything? Even for COVID, we didn't wait online seven hours. People showed up to Meuchera. We couldn't have it in five minutes. So we'll get the vaccine tomorrow. And that's when it was serious business. Seven hours to give blood to another Jew. I can't get Magen David Adom to come to Mevaseret for a blood drive because they don't have space to take any more blood. That's an unbelievable thing. It's not only that they don't need it. They can't take it. There's no space for them to take blood anymore. I said, come, we'll get every guy in yeshiva, we'll give you all the blood. You know, like you could have the whole thing. They'll be in, they'll be in bed for a week. They, they, they're not, they're not, they said we just, we don't need it. People are, people are waiting around the block. You know, Mada, every year they're going around to all the yeshivas and all the seminaries trying to get people to give blood. But once you put our back up against the wall, we discover who we really are. This is, this is who we really are. The Medrash says that there was, a, uh, there was a fox, and the fox was running away from the farmer and his two sons, who were chasing him to get him out of their field, and they had him cornered up against the wall. And the fox realized that he couldn't jump up over the wall. And the fox, in a, uh, in a moment of, of clarity, realized that they're going to kill him unless he plays dead. So the fox just drops, pretends to drop dead of exhaustion, and he's just lying there on the floor. And so one of the farmer's sons says, Oh, the fox died. Well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out the fox's tooth because the fox's tooth is a good luck charm. I'll make a necklace out of it. So the fox hears this and the fox says, okay, I could live without a tooth. It's very, very painful, but I'm going to have to stay very still because I don't want that chas v'shalom. They should know that I'm alive because then they'll kill me. So they yanked out the tooth. And of course, the fox was in great pain, but the fox stayed very, very still. Then the farmer's son said, the next, farmer's, the next son said, okay, I'm going uh, to chop off the tail. Because I'll make a scarf out of the tail. You know, fox is a very bushy tail. I'll make a scarf out of the tail. The fox hears this and he's terrified to lose my tail, to lose a limb like that. But it's better than dying. The fox stays very still. And then the farmer's son cuts off the, cuts off the tail. And then the farmer says, I'm going to skin the fox and I'm going to take the skin and uh, I'm going to make like a mat out of the skin. And hearing this, the fox realizes that he's going to die. You know, if you get skinned, you're going to die anyway. And the Medrash, final, the Medrash finishes by saying, and hearing that, the fox jumped over the wall. 
So the question on the Medrus is, if the fox was able to jump over the wall, so then why, why didn't the fox jump over the wall? The answer is because a person has a certain level of kayach before they're going to die. They have a certain level of kayach. And they say, okay, I can only get to here. But when you put somebody up against the wall, then you, then you discover what they really are. Then somehow they have the capacity to use all of their kayach. It's like Kaviachal, uh, the mothers who are able somehow to lift up a car so that their children can be saved. You know, normally we only have kayach ad lapo. Right now, the, the, these Rishoyim Arurim, these barbarians, they, they gave us the capacity to tap into our Jewish neshamas in a way that is ordinarily not capable of getting to it. The level of achdus that we experience right now, it's not because we don't care about reform in the country right now. That's not the pshat. The pshat is a Jew right now doesn't have the capacity to be anything other than a Jew. You see people that are not actively, observantly Jewish. They're not doing anything with their, you know, with their Judaism. They may not even go to Shul and Yom Kippur, but today they're posting, today I'm Israeli. And this is, what's the pshat? There's a Jew's... Put a Jew against the wall and you'll discover his, his Jewishness. What's the pshat that Achdus has, has, has such an unbelievable capacity? So I just want to speak a little bit about the, uh, the Primia Satira just to unpack this a little bit. The, the Yerushalmi and Kedushin says, Kol Yisrael guf echad. All of Kla Yisrael is one body. The question is, what does that mean? What's the inner meaning of that? It sounds like just a very sweet thing to say that really we're all one body. But it, it actually has quite a deep meaning. The capacity of a body to operate um, is only insofar as the body is operating in, a, in an organic way where all parts are dealing with the other parts of the body symbiotically. So what is death? Death is when one part of the body no longer has the capacity to serve other parts of the body. So for example, if the heart muscle no longer has the capacity to pump blood to the rest of the body. So then the body will die because the limbs of the body need the blood and the oxygen that's in the blood in order to sustain the body. When somebody dies, it's because one part of the body was not capable of doing its job. When we think about achdus, I think sometimes we think about it in like a very cute way. Like, we're stronger together. You know, it's like one of those like hashtags, like stronger together. You know, it doesn't actually mean anything. It's just like, you know, they say, if you want to go fast, go along. If you want to go far, go together. So we think of it as like a very cute catchphrase. It's not what it is at all. It, we're literally not capable of life. We're not, we're not capable of life if one Jew is not playing their role. It's not a cute thing the Lubavitchers do. People think it's like a very cute thing the Lubavitchers do. Yeah, they put tefillin on people. Isn't that nice? They get a Jew to do a mitzvah. It's not a cute thing that they're doing. What they're trying to do is activate the Jewish soul. If you'll be Jewish and you'll participate, it's for the entire system. The system requires every Jew. When we speak about the Beis HaMikdash being destroyed because of Sinas Chinam, it's we think of it almost as like two things. We weren't behaving nicely, so the Beis HaMikdash had to be destroyed. Chas V'Shalom to say something like that. The capacity for the Beis HaMikdash to exist can only be in a state of achdus, Because once there's a state of disunity, once there's a state of parity between everybody, so then there's no, there's no capacity for the thing to exist. It's not a cute word. It's, it's the biology of what it means to be a part of a body. It's the biology of the soul. And at our core, of course... The, the Jewish soul is made up of five levels. The highest level of the Jewish soul is something called Yechida. Yechida is the point where every single Jew is connected infinitely to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. From that perspective, there's no such thing as closer and farther in terms of the souls. The greatest tzaddik and the lowest level rasha are equally connected to HaKadosh Baruch Hu because we're literally all one. That's not, a, that's, that's not like a cute mashal. That's an actual fact. When we speak about souls that are ikvis of the Mashiach souls, it means these are the souls that are literally the heel of Adam Marishon. The heel is designed, yes, it's the lowest level part of the body, but it's also the part of the body that creates motion. So when we speak about the souls that are ikvis of the Mashiach, which are our souls, we might be the most unfeeling because we're the heel, but we're also the part that requires us to understand that we are connected most to the mind. The mind and the, and the, and the foot need to work together in order to traverse that path to bring Mashiach to coming. There's, there's an amazing vart that I saw from, uh, from Rav Kalman Epstein. Beautiful vart, Rav Kalman Epstein, Rosh Shiva of, uh, of Sharatayra. We know that Kla Yisrael by Arsinai says, Vayichan Sham Yisrael Neged Ahar. And Vayichan is Blashon Yachid. So Rashi says, Ki Ishachad Balevachad. So I saw a brilliant kasha. Rav Kalman asks, Kla Yisrael wasn't Ki Ishachad Balevachad in Mitzrayim? When they were being beaten by the taskmasters? When their children were being murdered and thrown in the river? 
when when uh, when they were sitting at Kriyas Yamsov, they were in Kiishachad Balevachad. So if Kalman said a very deep word, if Kalman said, it's easy to be together when things are tragic. It's easy for us to find each other when we have no other choice but to be with each other. But when everything is good, will we be with each other? Will we still recognize the the guf echad quality that Klal Yisrael has? Things were good. Things were so good. We, we, we were doing so well. And as a result, we became very disconnected from the idea that we need to remain connected to, which is we are guf echad. That, that's, that's a fact. We can either choose to participate in this body or we cannot choose to participate in this body. You know, it's not nothing when we're sitting in our homes, and I don't just mean because it's bad chinuch. I mean on a deeper level. When we sit in our homes and we, and we sit there with these labels, and we go, Haredi this, Tzioni that, Chiloni this, these democratic reform people this way, that way, left, right, center. It's not only terrible chinuch for our children, it's much worse than that. It's, it's a statement about the way that we see other Jews. You know, we can disagree with ideas, but I think we forgot that we're not disagreeing with people, we're disagreeing with their ideas. And, and we, we trampled each other. We really trampled each other. We really did, we, we really did a terrible job of this. I don't mean to be mekatrigan so I'm saying that right now is the tikkun for what, for what happened. But again, the tikkun came in tough times. The question is not right now. Now you're going to see it's going to be wild. We're going to stay united. It's going to be hafla vafela. But the question is, can we take the lesson that's happening right now and can we bring it out into the reality? And the only way to do that is to be no seba'al. And I know that this is a classic thing to say, but it's still, even though Rebetzin Lubak gave me Rishos once, she said, I like the classic things. So in this home, we can say the classic things. I know it's the classic thing to say. You have to be no se ba'olam chaveiro. I want to share with you, I went to Yeshiva Darche Torah in the five towns. I went for almost four years. I was thrown out of school in the beginning of fifth grade. Rabbi Bender took me in. So I can't say that I was there for four years, but I was there for three years and most of the fourth year. And uh, I heard many, many shmuzen from Rabbi Bender Shlita. On Fridays, we would go in and we would pack the shul again. Darche back then was only maybe 500 kids in the school. Today, I think it's like 2,500 kids in the school. It's, a, it's an empire. It's an airport. I was there when it was still the trailers. But I, I remember when, uh, when Rabbi Bender would give his shmuzen. And I, I have to tell you, I thought very hard about this as I got to be an adult. I don't ever remember once, not once, I don't ever remember Rabbi Bender giving us a shmuz about hasmada. I don't ever remember him giving, and it's not that he didn't care about learning Torah. I promise you he cares tremendously about learning Torah. But I never heard him got up and say, guys, you got to learn more Torah. I never remember that shmuz. It could be he gave it, but it certainly didn't leave its mark on me if he did. And I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that I could say he never gave it. But I could tell you what shmuz he did give. Every single week was a Bein Adam, without exception. It was a Bein Adam L'chaveiro speech. Every single week. There was no such thing in Darche as a shmuz that wasn't Bein Adam L'chaveiro. It didn't exist. It Pasha didn't exist. Even the shmuz I remember that he did give about learning was learn with a weaker bacher so that you could be a bal chesed while you're learning. His entire thing was chesed. Everything in Darche was chesed and no se ba'olem chavero. Be where your friends are. If your friends are suffering, you've got to be suffering with them. And he says over this var, and it's one of my favorite ideas, and I'll share it with you. It's from Rav Pam, Zechat Sadak Levracha. Rav Pam was Rashiva of Tarvadas. And uh, Rabbi Bender himself, his father was the Menahal of Tarvadas before he passed away, so Rabbi Bender was very connected to Rav Pam. In fact, one of Rav Palm's children was a rabbi in Darche. Rav Palm said the following idea. He said, on the day that Sarah Imenu had children, everybody who was infertile, every woman who wasn't able to have children, on that day they all had children. It was a tremendous nace. The simple understanding of this is that the Shafa Bracha opened up so much in Shamayim that everybody was able to, everybody was able to have children on that day. But Rav Pam said that's not the pshat. Rav Pam said a much deeper pshat. Rav Pam said the pshat is, Sara Imenu could not be besimcha if she knew that the woman next door who couldn't have children, or the woman in the community who couldn't have children, would be, would be so broken by the fact that she couldn't have children. And Sara Imenu did. She said, I can't have a child until everybody has a child. That was her level of no sibolem chavero. That she said to the Rabbanu Shalom, if you're going to bless me with a child, you have to bless everybody with a child. Because how could I have a child, and the woman next to me won't have a child, and I should be okay. We can't be okay. To be no seba'olam chavero means empathy. Empathy means vulnerability. You know, it's sympathy is easy. Sympathy is a cheap emotion. Sympathy is pity. Sympathy is a... And, and if any of you have ever been on the receiving end of pity, you know how awful pity is. You know, if you're going through something and somebody goes, Ay. It's like, do me a favor, keep your eye to yourself. I don't need your eye. You know what your eye is designed to do? It's designed to make you feel better. And now you got to say something. Empathy means that you have to be present and real with what's happening. Empathy means that you have to look inside of yourself to discover 
where you can access some point of emotion that's at the very least a similar experience to the one that this person is having. And that's a very vulnerable thing because if somebody's experiencing pain, that means that you need to go and find that pain within yourself. And people don't want to do that. People would not rather be in the present and they'd rather ignore the emotions that they have. To empathize with somebody means to really sit, to close your eyes, to locate that emotion and to share with the other person that I'm with you and not have to find any silver lining and not have to have any oi or anything like that. Just to be able to sit with a person. I remember... I remember that uh, when, when one of my closest friends, his, uh, his father passed away, I flew back to America for the Shiva. And I sat, I lived in his house through the entire Shiva. I lived in his house for seven days. And I was there the entire time. And I saw many people come and go. Most people don't live in a house for an entire Shiva unless you're sitting Shiva. I lived in a house for the entire Shiva. I watched my friend tell the same stories over and over again. Over and over again. He told the same exact stories of his father over and over again. And you see people, and everybody has a different way of paying a shiva call. You know, you, you have the people who like sit in the back or are coming to sort of like be there, but they don't really have much to say. You have the people in the front. You have the head nodders. You know the head nodders? They do this the entire time. You know that move. I want to tell you, you know who the most impressive shiva call was? Seven days. The most impressive shiva call was Avonfried, the singer. The most impressive shivakal. He he came. I've never seen presence like this before. Now, if you've ever seen Avram Fried perform, you know that he's a real. Uh, he has a real special talent. He doesn't uh, whether you like his music or don't like his music. To see him on stage is something wild. He has a tremendous presence to him. He came into the room and he sat down and he was really there. And in the things that he said were really real, and you could tell he was present with the emotions that were going on. When he left, the entire shiva house was like shaken. Everybody was talking about like it was the craziest shivakal I ever saw. He had an unbelievable presence in the room to really, be, to really be in pain with the person who was in pain. I've never seen anything like it since then. I don't know if I'll ever see anything like it ever again. It was the most incredible shivakal ever. To be no sabah olam chavero, to take time, if we really want to create long-lasting achdos, if we want to walk away from this with something very tangible, then take the time, as difficult as these things might be, to imagine what it is like for people who have husbands on the front. Just as an example, you know, in, in yeshiva, I was in yeshiva for Simchas Torah. At 8 o'clock in the morning, the first siren went off, and I woke my wife and kids up. And at that point, I'll be very honest with you, at that point I was like, you know, we've had that in Beit Shemesh before. You know, have the random one-time siren. I didn't think it was going to be what it became. And, uh, and I woke my wife and kids up. My six-year-old was very cute. He got up and uh, he said, Ugh. They're starting milchama with us. I just, I don't mind if you're going to fight, but maybe later. I really wanted to sleep. You know, he's like a very sweet little six-year-old boy thing to say. And one of the things that the Talmidim in the yeshiva saw, which I'm so glad they got to see it, is they saw the guys who live on our campus. They saw the Meretz Kolo guys get dressed in their madim and their combat fatigues and pack up their bags and say goodbye to their wives and get in the car. These are very stark guys sitting and learning all day. They got in their cars on Shabbos and they drove to the front. That's what they did. They saw the Avbayid in Yeshiva. They saw one of the Rebbeim in Yeshiva get dressed and leave on some Chastaura on Shabbos. They saw it. And one of the boys said to me, and this happens to be, I'm, I'm not going to lie, this is a very special boy. This is a potential Shidduch type of boy. You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> it's okay. I know you're dead. The, uh, he would have said ten times worse. The, um, the, this boy, he, he, he watched it and he said to me, he goes, Rebbe, I just saw a man say goodbye to his wife. And he got in the car. And this, again, it was his narrative. But he said the look that he had on his face was that might have been the last time I saw my wife and kids. And I said to him, I said, I want you to know, take that with you forever. Take that moment with you forever that you were with him, that you were with him. That's not a random thing. You know, we read numbers. There's all these numbers, 700 people, 800 people. These are not numbers. These are people's husbands and wives and daughters and, and sons. And, and they're going to the front. When they're in the front right now, I'm davening, I'm, I'm davening for every soldier. I'm going to be very honest. In a certain way, I'm davening even more so for, for the people that I know. And it's not because I'm shalom, disconnected from those Jews that I don't know. It's that it's very real. To daven for somebody who's in front of you. Of course, we're doing a tremendous amount of chesed. And Rav Isaacson's daughters, they posted a thing on WhatsApp. Free babysitting for anybody whose husbands went to the front and need help. And they have 40 girls. 40 girls who right away were in. And they, what are these girls doing now? They're like secretaries. They're getting phone calls from all over the place. We could use some help. Our husbands went. We could use help watching the kids so I can go shop. This, that. They're, they're like a babysitting service now. Free babysitting service. They're sending these girls out all over the place. 
This is what it means to be imo anochi b'tzara, because if you're with somebody else in these moments, then it's real to you. It's not some, it's not some abstract thing. Guf echad cannot become, it can't be an abstract concept. The same way that we would never take an, take an axe and chop off our hand, that's what we do every single time we engage in sinas chinam. And sinas chinam is a very subtle thing. Sinas chinam is something as easy as saying the charedim. I don't care what the end of that sentence is. That's never, it's not going to be a pretty sentence. It's always going to come with a little bit of a that's you know, the, once you put those labels on, what do you think? There, Benishlam and Harsinai was sitting there going like, okay, Charedim over here, Tzuyanim over here, you know, like you on this side of the mountain, you on that side of the mountain. It's not the way, that, it's not the way Harsinai was. Harsinai was Ki'ishachad Balevachad. That's a real concept. It's one that we have to make actionable. It's one that we have to make real. The only way to do it is no Siba Olam Chavera. That's the only way to do it. We have to be like Sari Menu, and we have to be willing to say in a very real way, I'm not, I'm not moving on from this war until I take every single Jew with me. If this doesn't change us, I can't say nothing will, because 3,000 years the Rabbi Shalom has been trying to send us this message. But maybe this time we could do a better job. Maybe this time, again, without playing any theodicy games, maybe this time we could say, I'm, I'm going to figure out how to connect to every single Jew. And I, I'll be the first person to admit I'm guilty of it. I, I've gone to B'nai Brak, I've walked through the streets of B'nai Brak, and I sometimes look at these people and go, it's amazing that we have anything in common. Because I grew up a kid from the five towns. You know, I see these people, like, I, culturally, they grew up in a completely different world than me. The, the thing that we have in common is we learn the same Gamar Rashi Taisus. You know, like, I, I can't, like, I sometimes wonder, like, we're sitting on the bus next to these people. I'm like, do I have anything in common with these people? The answer is yes. That's my heart. That's my arm. That's my legs. The, the thought that I that I'm having, do I have anything in common with these people? It's, 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 a, it's, it's an untruth. It's one plus one equals apples. It's not math. It doesn't work. It's not right. The only way that we're going to do this is if we're no sebaol. And, and that's the avoda. And, and I was so proud. I was so proud to see that Baruch Hashem, as soon as Yom Tif was over, it wasn't like a, like nobody needed, to, I know it sounds like a funny thing, I would say, they canceled Hakafashnias. You know, sometimes you're like, you're like expecting certain things. No, no, no. Across the board, they're like, no, we're all in. We're all in. If you saw the pictures in, in, in Magen David Adom in the, in the blood drives, every single type of Jew was there. Black hat, no yarmulke, yes yarmulke. What type of yarmulke? You know that article that was written years ago by Rabbi Emanuel Feldman? The Sheikh wants to come, but he doesn't know what hat to wear. That's the best article. The Sheikh wants to come. Maybe if we stopped worrying about the hats, he would. So that's my bracha for us. My bracha for us is maybe this time we'll get it right. Maybe this time the insanity will end. And we could be zaychet to live back and... Uh, you know, some say it's a dream. Some people tell me that, uh, Rebbe, it's impossible, it's not going to happen. But if the lesson of the sukkah was anything, it's that we look through the schach to see the stars. You know, some people, they, they can only see the schach. That's a puzzle of sukkah. You have to be able to see through. A yid has to be a dreamer. You have to be able to see through what is to the vision of what could be. So, maybe we haven't done a good enough job, but I still have hope. I still believe there's a vision for what we could be. Okay, so with the remaining time that we have left, uh, if there's any questions, were there any questions submitted? One of the questions, what, first of all, one of the questions you could ask after, one of Simona Dushan said if you could discuss briefly just how to respond to our children during these challenging times, we have young children, we have kids in grade school, um, yeah. yeah. And also there's no, like, pressure to stay, if anybody wants yeah, to Yeah, if anybody wants to go, please yeah. go. The, um... So first of all, I just want to say that there, that there is an article that was published literally as I walked in the door. I got the message that it was published. Um, so I can share the article with Rebetzin Lubat, and, uh, and she can share it with everybody. But there was an article that I wrote specifically today on the subject of how to teach, um, how to talk to your children in these difficult times. Um, and so I could just say a couple things, and, and really these rules are across the board. Um, First of all, Kodum Kol, it doesn't matter what age group we're talking about. The principles are the same, but they just need to be scaled for each age group. My six-year-old son is usually pretty, like he's like a cautious type of kid. You know, like some Israeli kids have like no sense of boundaries. So like my son is very American in that way. Like he's, he's like a very boundaried kid. We got in the car on Matzai Simchas Torah, and I guess because we were no longer surrounded by the Bachram in Yeshiva, and having lived through the sirens of that day and all the booms, etc., etc., so we get in the car and he is chirping away. He's like talking like I've never seen. And my son-in-law, my daughter, and my son were in the and my six-year-old son were in the back seat. My wife and I were in the front seat, and he is just chirping away. And my wife, who's a trained therapist, she turns to me and she goes, "This is what it looks like for a little boy to process." 
as he was just trying things out. And it was like, the Aravim this, the Iron Dome that. He was just trying to like figure out what everything is. If kids are talking, so that means, it doesn't necessarily mean they believe what they're saying, but they're trying things out. Our responsibility is to communicate with our children. So there's a couple of Klalim. Klal number one is be open and honest with your children. That gives you the opportunity to pick what you want to share. It gives you the opportunity to give context to what you want to share. But most importantly, if you will share with your children, that means you become the address. You know, your kids are going to come home from school. It doesn't matter what age they're in. And they're going to say these words, my friend said, right? My friend said to them is fact. My friend said that we are going to drop 10 atomic bombs on all of Gaza and, 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 uh, and we're going to have to deal with the nuclear fallout. You know, it's like my friend said is like social media. It has like an, it has like an ounce of truth, but that's all it is. My friend said is, is, uh, is hater, it's hater social media. That's what it is. What we want is that our children should know that the address for truth is us. And the only way that we can do that is if we share information proactively with them. Again, it doesn't mean you share everything. It does mean that you give context to it. I can also share with you, they put out in Hebrew a, a little children's book, a little children's pamphlet to talk about what war looks like, especially designed for little kids. It's very simple, and it just talks about like what things are. But the more you can say to your kids, it's true that they fired in a lot of, again, assuming let's say they're little kids, you could say they fired in a lot of tilim, and Baruch Hashem, we have something called an Iron Dome, and an Iron Dome knocks down the tilim to make sure that they won't hurt us. You know, for little kids, by giving them that information, it gives them a sense of safety. Most importantly, it makes us the address. So the rule here is you be the one to share with them. Don't wait for them to come to you, because if, they're, if you think you're waiting for them to come to you, remember they're getting the information from somewhere else. That's number one. Number two... Um, there's a couple of parts when our kids are communicating with us. There's a couple of things to keep in mind. I don't think these things are very complicated, but they are very important. Uh, number one rule is something called active listening. Don't assume that just because your child is talking means that you know what they're talking about. And there's two reasons that we don't know what our kids are talking about. The first reason we don't know what our kids are talking about is because while they're talking, we're thinking about what to respond. Just think of it like your husband's. Right? You know how that look that you have, your husband has on his face when you're talking and you see that he already has something to say? <laughs> right? You know that look? So it's very uncomfortable. It's very unsafe. Yeah? Grossman's, you know that look uh, from your dad? <laughs> yeah, the, uh, there's, a, there's a sense that we, that, we, that we give to our children. If they can see in our faces that we're already thinking of something back to say, A, it's much less safe for them. And B, it means you're not listening so carefully. And also... If you're listening to them and you're listening to them through the lens of what you hear them saying, then you're not listening to what they're actually saying. Right? So you have to be able to listen to what they're saying. So the first rule in active listening is suspend all judgment and actually listen to what's being said. If you repeat to them, I think I heard you say this, two things will happen. Either the kids will tell you, even young kids will tell you, no, that's not what I meant. Right? And it might not be what they meant, which is also safe because that means that they have the opportunity to say to you, that's not actually what I meant. Um, and, and if they see you say, oh, could you explain it to me again? Again, it creates an environment of safety. But what's more likely happening is you did get it right. If you were really actively listening and you were quiet, you probably did get it right. But what happens is when you said, I heard you say this, and then they heard it back, they said, no, no, that's not what I want to say. That doesn't feel right to me. So you're actually helping the kids process just by listening. So if you'll say to a kid, let's say, for example, I see that you're scared. And then, you know, or like, I heard you say that you're scared. And then they'll stop and they'll go, no, I'm, I'm not exactly scared. That's not what it is, right? And then, again, depending on the level of, of you know, maturity that they have and language that they have, they'll express something a little bit different. I do this even in yeshiva with 18-year-old guys. I say... I'm hearing that you're scared. And they go, yeah, but that doesn't really capture it. It's more like helpless, right? So meaning what they said to me was scared, but just simply by saying the word scared back, they discovered the word helpless. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen with a first grader or a second grader. Sometimes we have to give them the emotional language, right? Sometimes they'll say like, I don't know, I'm just having nightmares. And then you can say to them, 
seems like you're feeling really scared. Right? So actively listening creates language, creates safety, creates the opportunity for them to process. After you've actively listened, then you've really sort of found your way into like together a rhythm. So then there's empathy, which is what we spoke about before. Can you be present with your child in that moment? Again, that's a tremendous feeling of safety. And most importantly, that gives the child a sense of belonging and community. All the studies that have been done have shown that people who struggle together as a community have a greater capacity to um, to engage with one another and, and work through whatever is happening. A child who's suffering alone, by the way, these things are not just for the war, these things are in general, but a child who's suffering alone is going to have a much harder time processing what's happening than someone who feels that, that there's imo anochi b'tzara, that there's an empathy that's happening. As parents, we can and should be the address for empathy. And it can even happen as a first or second grader. I'll share with you, uh, and this is, it didn't work. I think I said it maybe once here before. Um, I do this thing with my kids, especially when they're younger, um, where I, I say, even if we can't name the emotion that we're feeling, let's at least locate it in our body. And I'll say, like, where are you feeling this? And they'll say, I'm feeling it here. And I'll say, well, can we feel this together? You put your hand on that spot and I'll put my hand above you. And, and they do it. And it's an amazing thing. So my son, on his first, on his first day of Cheder, not this past year, but the, a year ago, he was feeling something. And we were in the cheder room, and he was really very uncomfortable with us leaving. And so I picked him up, and I put him on a stack of chairs so that we could be face-to-face. And I said, show me what you're feeling right now. And so I said, I'm feeling here. And I said, okay, let's do it together. And it went like this, you know, and he was breathing, and we were doing the whole thing. And I said, do you have any gvura inside of you right now? Do you have any strength inside of you? And he said, yes. And I said, where are you feeling it? He said, I'm feeling it in the same place. And I put his hand over there, and I put his hand on top, and we're breathing. And I said, do you think you're ready for me to go now? And he goes, no. And it, the, you know, it didn't work at all. And I wish the end of that story was that it worked, and I left, because that would be a great chinuch story. But unfortunately, it's not what happened at all. But you know, it, it's, it's still a good story, because later that night, when I, asked, um, when I asked my son, what did you learn today in your first day in Cheder? He said, I learned that my pachar and my gvura are in the same place. And that's a beautiful thing for a five-year-old to be able to say. So being actively listening and empathizing, showing our children that we're there with them, that when they put their hand on their heart, we put their hand on our heart with them. That's, that's a very beautiful thing. After empathy comes normalization and validation. And, and this, is, this is obvious, but it still needs to be said. The name, of the, the name of the game here is teaching our children to accept whatever is happening for them. Acceptance is key. And sometimes people feel, adults, teenagers, even little kids, sometimes people feel ashamed of the emotion that they're having. Like, I'm sure, I mean, I know for a fact, there was a guy today in yeshiva who was crying, and he felt deeply ashamed of the fact that he was crying. You know, a macho 18-year-old Mavasara boy is not supposed to be crying. And this was a guy who's particularly macho. So he's in my office, and he's like, Rav, I'm so embarrassed that I'm crying. And I said, can you help me understand what's embarrassing about crying? He goes, Nothing, but like, come on, you know, it's like embarrassing. And I'm like, no, no, really, like, can you help me understand what's embarrassing about crying? That seems to be a really understandable response. And really, when we think about it, our children are, above all, our children are understandable. They really are. Everything, if we would know really, like, why a kid is doing what they're doing, every single one of us would know our kids are understandable. When a kid is having an emotion, if we can validate that that emotion is happening, if we can normalize it and say what you're going through is understandable, it removes any sense of shame, and then it allows the emotion to move through them. The challenge of emotions is most people think they're going to get stuck in emotions. Emotions really can only last 90 seconds if we feel them, 90 seconds at the max. The reason why we feel emotions for so much longer in general is because we don't allow ourselves to feel our emotions, and one of the reasons we don't allow ourselves to feel our emotions is because we're ashamed of them. So by normalizing and validating, even a little kid, even a, even a you know, first grader who hears a boom and he goes, you know, I don't like these booms. You can you know, say, yeah, I don't like these booms either. Yeah, I can really understand that, right? It's like, oh, okay, we're allowed not to like the booms. And then they could say, oh, I'm allowed not to like things. And then they go back and play. You see that they do it because there's a sense of what I went through is fine. The last thing I want to say is called support. You know, our kids, our, our, our kids know what uh, what support means to them. They might need time to figure it out, but ultimately they are the keepers of their truth. So if you ask a kid, if you sat with a kid, and you actively listened to them, and you empathized with them, and you normalized and validated with them, you can say to them these words, what do you think you need right now? What do you think you need right now is a very powerful phrase. 
And you know what? Little kids even will sometimes tell you, I think I just want to go play. And you could say, that's okay, you're allowed to go play right now. Or little kids will say, I don't think I want to talk about this anymore. And you could say, that's okay, space is an okay thing to take. And I just want you to know that if you ever do want to talk, I'm going to be right here. And some kids will say, do you think you could come and check in, you know, check in on me at night? And you know, like we can offer levels of support, but what sometimes happens is that parents think they're supporting kids, and actually what they're doing is they're supporting the kids the way they would want to be supported. To be humble to our children means to pay attention to what their need for support is, to provide their need of support. And that's something I think that uh, we can certainly do for our kids. The final thing I'll say about this is if we've done all that, the gift that you give your kids is courage. Courage comes from the Latin word, which means heart. What we want is for our children to be heartful. We want them to be fully emotionally present in the reality of that moment. The reason that they have trouble being fully emotionally present is because they haven't necessarily been given the gift in life to be able to know that they're able to show up as their true self. And so most people actually limit their heartfulness, which is such a sad thing. I'm sure you've seen this, um, for those of you that have dated or were dating, you ever see a guy show up on a date and he's like timid? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, if you have, like, a really bad date. I don't mean, maybe some of you like that. But, like, you know, you know, there's, like, that guy on a date that, like, he shows up and he like, can barely get his name out. And you're like, oh, I'm going to have to do all the heavy lifting on this date. And some shotgun's like, you'll see, give it three, four dates. He's really a good guy. He just needs to come out. You know what I mean? Like, there's a, there's a certain sense of, of, of um, there's a certain beauty in timidness. There is a certain beauty in, like, a gentle type of soul. But... We want people to show up as their whole self. Most people can't show up as their whole self because they don't think that their whole self is acceptable. The reason they don't think their whole self is acceptable is because they were never taught that what they're going through is okay. And so most of us learn to not be ourselves, at least publicly. And so what we do is we limit ourselves. And that shows up. Most of us are meant to be on stage. And on stage means different things to different people. But most of us are meant to be on stage shouting out our lines with real courage, with real heartfulness. And it's a, it's a tragedy that you see that, you know, like when people especially, the most the funniest time of the year for me is day one of the yeshiva year. Because you see all these macho 18-year-old boys coming down the stairs to yeshiva for the first time and they're all like a deer in the headlights, scared out of their wits. It's the cute. I want to take a picture of them just to show them. They're coming down the stairs and they're like looking around like, where am I? Who am I with? Did I choose the right yeshiva? I don't know what I'm doing here. You know, it's like a very cute type of moment. And they limit themselves. Told that first guy exposes himself and says it's okay to be me and it's okay to be present and then it gives permission for everybody else to do. I remember when I was in yeshiva, I have a to tell the story, you shouldn't think I'm saying Lashon Hara. I remember when I was in yeshiva, I got off the plane in Ben-Gurion and I really wasn't sure if I chose the right yeshiva. I went to Mavasaret and uh, I really wasn't sure if I chose the right yeshiva. I, I like Labadik guys. I like the uh, the guys who know how to have a good time and I, I don't like too cool. I don't like the too, like the too cool for school guys. I was never, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be with those guys. And I knew that there were a lot of two cool guys, you know, coming to the yeshiva. I had met them the year before at ball, and there were like all these like superstar basketball players. And I was like, oh man, I don't want to compete, you know. But like, and once I found out they were going, it was like a disincentive for me to go to Mavasaret. I half went into Mavasaret thinking maybe I'll switch. And I was in Ben Gurion Airport, and I was really deciding that I make the right decision, that I not make the right decision. By the way, some of those guys became my best friends, but I thought they were too cool for school because I was very judgmental in my own place of inadequacies. But I decided I was in the right yeshiva when I saw Elliot Bakritsky, who lives today in Efrat. Elliot Bakritsky got on the baggage claim and lied down like a piece of luggage. <laughs> and he just went around and around the carousel until finally another Mavasar guy claimed him. And it was, I was like, oh, now I know I'm in the right yeshiva. I like that type of like humor. I think that's funny. I like it because there's a certain sense of I can be my full self here and you can be your full self. That's the gift that we want to give our children. This happens to be, we have to do all of these klalim, apply really to any time with our children, but especially now, given this opportunity, we really have the, we really have the time to, to be able to bring these things out of our children. It's a particularly good time. Again, it has to be age appropriate. Obviously, a four-year-old is going to be very different than an eight-year-old, which is going to be very different than a 16-year-old, but everybody, including a four-year-old, is going through something right now. And don't think that because they're four years old, they're not going through something. They might look like they're just playing with their Legos. They're also going through something right now. And they'll remember. They'll say, yeah, I remember that there was like running back and forth and sleeping in the mamad. By the way, there'll be some amazing memories for them. You can make the mamad a very fun place. But if we engage in these core principles, I think that that's that's the best way we can parent our kids through this. Okay, maybe we'll stop here for now. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. Besurus Tavos, we should be zeichre gul shleim b'karav mamish.